0: Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Father, I couldn't have prayed it any better than Alan just did a few moments ago. We come to this passage that talks about relationships of authority and submission, and we live in a world where authority is used to hurt and harm and domineer and abuse in too many cases. So I realize that. Help me. I need you to accurately and clearly proclaim your word. And I need you to work in the hearts of all of us so that we hear what you want us to hear out of this passage. So give me words to speak and give us hearts to hear now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter breaks in the Bible often come in curious places, and this is one of them for me. Of course, in the original text, there's no chapter breaks and no verse numbers, so the division here between chapters 5 and 6 is a bit arbitrary, and I say that because Paul kind of gives an overarching exhortation in chapter 5, verse 21, we looked at, couple of weeks ago. He tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Literally, the word there is fear, fear of Christ. And then, surprisingly, he illustrates that by three different relationships of authority and submission. So you'd think he would pick relationships where there's more equality, like brother, sister, friends, whatever. But no, he picks these relationships where there's clear lines of authority and submission, husband and wife, children and parents, slaves and masters. So I think this whole section from 521 through chapter six, verse nine is really one section. We should take it as one big section. So I'm kind of preaching parts two and three of what really could be a three-part sermon here. Dave did part one last week. And I think one of his main points in doing this is to show how submitting to one another works in these different relationships where one party has authority and the other is to submit to that authority. So this idea of submitting to one another does not negate authority or reduce all relationships to some great egalitarian mush. It shows how the fear of Christ, that literal word there, the fear of Christ impacts all relationships and governs both how we submit to authority and how we exercise it. But we know, don't we, that ever since the fall, authority has been problematic. All kinds of examples of bad human authority tainted by sin. There's domineering abuse of authority has always been present throughout history, as has passive and ineffective authority. So it's not hard to find examples of harmful ways of exercising authority in our world. But that's not how Jesus exercises authority. Jesus tells those in authority, and he does this with his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, he tells those in authority that to be great, they've got to become servants. And if they want to be first, they've got to become servants slaves well that's an important word we're going to talk about in a few minutes so it's not hard to see how the person under authority is supposed to to submit but what about the person with authority what what does authority look like in this submitting to one another well, let's start with a definition. I want to define what I think good authority is. So this is my definition. If it's off base, you got nobody to blame but me. So talk to me about it. But I think it, I tried to kind of summarize what I see as the biblical teaching on the godly use of authority. So here we go. Godly leaders use authority for the blessing, benefit, and flourishing of those under their leadership. Let me say that again. Godly leaders use authority for the blessing, benefit, and flourishing of those under their leadership. In other words, authority exercised under the lordship of Jesus Christ seeks the good of others ahead of self, it seeks to outdo others in showing honor, it seeks to nurture growth and spiritual health in others. Remember, the last week, Dave gave us two helpful ways of categorizing authority out of Jonathan Lehman's book by that same title. I think they're really helpful. So there's the authority of command, and that's an authority that has some teeth to it. An example would be government, has the power of the sword. We know that from Romans 13. And then there's the authority of counsel, in which really the only God-ordained backing is teaching, persuasion loving and that's more the authority we see we saw last week between husband and wife but as we'll see i think this definition of authority that i just gave you works with both those kinds whether or not enforcement power is given to the authority in the relationship the way one serves is by working for the blessing and benefit and flourishing of those who are under the authority Okay, so with that kind of an introduction, let's do a little review of where we've come in Ephesians. So the first three chapters, Paul has talked about our identity in Christ and all that God has done to give us this new identity. And then in chapters four to six, Paul has talked about what a life lived out of such an identity should look like. And fundamental to this new identity is that we now serve a new Lord, Jesus Christ, good, good, good. and he intends to hold sway. Jesus intends to hold sway in every aspect of our lives. His lordship impacts our life together in the community of the church. That's in the first half of chapter four. It impacts our desires, our thoughts, our words, our sex lives. That's, that's the second half of chapter four through the first part of chapter five, and it impacts all relationships of authority and submission as well and that's what we looked at last week and continuing to look at this week in all these cases our use of and or response to authority ought to be a reflection of our ultimate submission to Christ so we're just going to walk through the text in the order that Paul takes it we're going to talk to children first but there's something for us adults too going to talk to fathers and we're going to talk to slaves how many slaves in here <laughs> probably no slaves no masters in the traditional sense but we'll talk about that what what that might mean for us so let's start with the kids listen up kids this part this is the apostle paul speaking right to you speaking right to you and by kids i mean anyone living in the home under the support of the parents so that includes you teenagers as well So here's the word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Not super complicated, okay? We don't need to know the original Greek or have some fancy interpretation here. It's right there. We can all understand that whether we're three or 93, it doesn't take deep insight. Obey your parents and he tells us why. Because it's right, it's fitting. It's right for you to do this. And notice that he says, obey your parents in the Lord. What's that mean? What's that mean? Well, as we're gonna see later in the passage, Paul's constantly refrain when he discusses obedience to human authority, and this is is any human authority, government or whatever, um, his constant refrain is, obey them as you would obey the Lord. Obey them as you would obey the Lord. And I think that's what he means here. Kids, obey your parents as you would the Lord Jesus if he were the one telling you to clean your room, as if he were the one telling you to take out the trash, to do your homework, or whatever it is they're asking you to do. Now, let me put in a little caveat. I'm gonna do a few caveats in the course of this message today. There are always limits to our submission to any human authority because no human authority is perfect. And that holds true for kids as well. So kids, you ought not to obey mom and dad if they tell you to steal something from the store. How many times have your parents asked you to do that? Anybody? I didn't think so. You ought not to obey if your parents tell you to lie. You should say no. But let's be honest, there aren't many parents, at least not in this room, that are trying to teach their kids to do wrong. We have a bigger problem the other way, don't we, parents? So in obeying kids, you're not just pleasing your parents, you're not doing it to please your parents, you're doing it to please the Lord. Let me say it this way, kids, if you're truly saved by grace through faith and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been born again, then you will want to obey him. It'll be your joy to obey him. And one very practical way you do that is by obeying your parents. Now, I'm going to pause for another little caveat here. I realize that there are some horrifically bad parents in the world, parents who have abused and damaged their kids' terribly and some of you adults might in this room might be might have been those kids that might have been your experience so I realize that's true out there and I want you to know that I know you're there and I'm not ignorant of that as I talk about these things but that's not what Paul is addressing in this passage so there's other passages of the Bible that deal with that that's not what he's addressing here all right, with that caveat, that little parentheses, let's move on, verses two and three, Paul gives an incentive to you kids to obey. He quotes from the 10 Commandments in verses two and three, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Here's the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So once again, by obeying your parents, you're honoring them and that in turn honors The Lord, because it aligns with his will that you honor your father and mother. Now, when he says this is the first commandment, what's he mean by that? Because if you go to the Ten Commandments in Exodus, it's really the fourth commandment. Well, I think what he means is it's the first of the commandments given that actually contains a direct promise attached to it. And, the, and look at that, what that promise is. He points to God's promise of a long life for successive generations of Israelites in the promised land if they will honor their fathers and mothers. Now, that leads me to another question. This should be churning through your mind. <clears throat> Why does God quote an old covenant promise to the people of Israel to a new covenant people, to kids under the new covenant? And don't we all know that there are Christian kids? So this is the second problem that comes up. There are Christian kids who have honored their parents who sometimes don't live a long life. Cancer, car accidents, kids sometimes die too. So what does he mean by living a long life? Well, Like many of the Old Testament promises and the way they're applied to us under the new covenant, I think there's a greater fulfillment of this promise when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. So this promise is gonna ultimately be fulfilled for all the people of God in the new heavens and new earth. So kids, teenagers, here's the simple application. Honor your father and mother by obeying them as long as they're not asking you to sin or dishonor God. And this is how you honor and obey the Lord. It's not only the right thing for you to do, but there's great reward for you when Jesus returns. That's amazing, God holds out the promise of reward. Okay, so that's kids, and it'll have application to all of you, we'll get to that at the end. Now let's look at fathers, verse four. Now you might ask, why does Paul address only fathers here? Because he mentions both parents in verses one to three. Why does he address only fathers? Well, he doesn't exactly explain that, but I think that the rest of scripture gives us a picture that God holds men, holds us men, uniquely responsible for the spiritual leadership of our families. Amen. You remember from our Genesis study, and I think Dave mentioned this last week, That even though Eve was the first one to eat from the tree, who did God call out to when he came looking for them in the garden? Genesis 3, 9 says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So God goes to the party that's ultimately responsible. Maybe not the party that perpetrated it, the party that's ultimately responsible when it's time to give an account. So fathers, we get singled out here because we are the ones primarily responsible for the discipling of our children. Notice I said primarily, not solely. Wives are supposed to help in that. But God holds us dads ultimately accountable. Now you may think it's okay to leave the discipling of your kids to your wives because your wife is so much more spiritually inclined than you are. I'm sorry, that's, that's not how God sets it up. That's not God's reasoning. Now, I'm not saying you have to do all the spiritual training, but I am saying you're responsible both to see that it's done and to participate in it. You have to be an active participant in it. The kids need to see that. And then, in the rest of verse 4, he gives, Paul gives us a brief what I would call a job description of what this is. He does it with a negative statement and a positive one. First, the negative. Do not provoke your children to anger. Now, I don't think by this that Paul means that you should always be Mr. Nice Guy with your kids or that if your kids are angry because they don't like being disciplined for their wrong behavior, that you should feel like you failed. Paul gives some further clarity over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. That's a parallel passage to this. When he says this, Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Angry, discouraged. Here's some ways you can discourage your kids, Dad. I, I just tried to think of some ways that, that I've seen and heard this done and probably been guilty of it at times myself. Never praise your child but always demand more from them. If they get a B, demand an A next time. Make sure they know they're never good enough unless they're perfect. Here's another way. Explode in anger every time they do wrong. That's a good way. It's a good way to make them angry, discourage them. Lay down severe punishments for even the most minor infractions lest they think that you're soft. Or you can be the opposite. Be passive and uninvolved with your kid's upbringing. Leave it to your wife, watch the next football game. Or do, or do this, make it all about external behavior. Just make sure they behave properly in public. It's not about the heart. So there's, that's just a few ways that I could think of off the top of my head that dads can d- discourage their children. So you get the idea. Here's the positive statement. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, what's discipline mean? We, we think of it as timeouts or spanking or whatever. Discipline here refers to the entire process of training and raising children. It carries the idea of nurturing. So yeah, dads, we're supposed to be involved in the nurturing of our children. It's not just for your wives. And then the second word refers to mild rebuke or correction. Some of your translations use the word admonition, which is probably a little better translation. So fathers, be in the word with your kids. I wish I had a whole sermon just to deal with this. Be in the word with your kids, pray with them, bring the Lord to bear on their problems, apply careful and appropriate admonition and correction And do these things, not with a view to just their external behavior, but with a view to seeing them love the Lord more deeply. And here's the amazing thing. As you do that, as you serve your children that way, you're obeying the Lord. You're doing what the Lord commands you to do. And so the promises of reward are for you, too. Okay, let's move on to slaves. Verses five to eight. Western cultures had a long and painful history with slavery. So here's my caveat on slavery. Slavery. Maybe especially here in America, the land of the free. And we ought not to forget that that freedom was only for some people for a long time in this country. Now, given the fact that that is a huge subject, And I don't have time to delve into it in any length in half a sermon. So I'm just going to ask you to indulge me with this kind of general caveat that none of what I'm about to say should be heard as endorsing slavery or minimizing the tragedy of it. However, it's clearly not Paul's intent here to deal with the moral issue of institutional slavery. That's that we're not dealing with that. He's using this, he's talking to people who were enslaved as well as their masters. Slavery was a matter of fact in the Roman Empire, just part of the culture and the air they breathed. Now if you have a modern translation like the ESV, you're, no, you're gonna notice that they use the word bondservant here. But it's really just a Greek word doulos, which means slave, it's just a general word for slave. So we can say that there was in fact a greater diversity of types of slavery in the Roman Empire. Most slaves in the Roman Empire were gleaned from from conquered nations. So the Romans would conquer a, a nation and enslave their people, particularly their armies. And then there were people who couldn't pay their debts and sold themselves into slavery to repay it. It's the only way they were gonna pay it back. There were others who were born into it, so more of a class thing. It generally had little or nothing to do with ethnicity, unlike slavery in America. Another thing about slavery, it's been in existence almost since the fall. Every nation, every civilization in human history up until the last couple hundred years has had systemic slavery. Now none of that should make us feel any better about the dehumanizing ownership of one human being by another. But a passage like this has important application to us today nonetheless. In fact, if you've ever heard anyone preach on this before, the most common application is in the employee-employer relationship. And look, that's, that's a great application. And I'm going to appeal to it a few times as we walk through this. But I think there's a deeper application about the lordship of Christ And we can lose that if we completely ignore the implications of what it means to be a slave, or what it meant to be a master. But before we get to that, let's just look at the text first. So the command to slaves, like to children, is to obey. To obey their lords according to the flesh. That's literally what the word masters in your ESV, it's actually lords according to the flesh in the Greek. And know first that Paul uses the Greek word for lords, for Lord here, kurios. And I think that's an intentional allusion because down in verse nine he's gonna talk about who the ultimate Lord is, same word. But notice that it isn't just obedience that Paul is commanding the slaves. They're to obey with a particular attitude. God is concerned not simply that you obey the authorities he's placed over you, but with how you obey them. And Paul emphasizes the heart attitude in this obedience three times in verses five to seven, using different words each time. So let's walk through them. Verse five, slaves are to obey with fear and trembling. We're often told in scripture, fear the Lord. Sometimes the fear of the Lord is synonymous with worship. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. So slaves are to obey their masters with the same attitude that they would approach God himself. If you work for somebody, you're to obey your boss with the same attitude that you'd approach God himself. It's also to be done with a sincere heart, no duplicity. In other words, slaves are to serve their master as they would serve Christ. And if you work for somebody, you should serve your boss that way, your employer. He teases all this out again in verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. They're bond service. that's slaves, slaves of Christ. This means we don't just obey earthly authorities when they're watching us. Ever done that? You only work hard at your job when the boss is watching? We're not doing that job. Whatever your job is, whatever you're doing, even if you're a mom at home just keeping house, whatever job you're doing, you're not doing it to please some earthly authority. You're doing it to please the Lord, so don't just do your best work when the earthly authorities are watching you. And then he repeats the same theme again in verse seven with these words: "Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man." Okay, so now he's almost removed the human authority from the equation altogether. You're not even don't even think about serving man. He he says basically what he says over in Colossians 3.17, where he says, whatever you do, some of you maybe memorize this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Is that your attitude on the job? Even when your boss is unreasonable or dictatorial, how would you serve Christ. And then I want you to notice, slaves, that there's a reward promised for your obedience, just like for children. Verse eight, Paul says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. So some of us think that we would be better motivated at work if we got a bigger paycheck. Or we think we'd be more motivated if we got more positive affirmation and thanks for the job we're doing. But look, from the Lord's standpoint, whether you get those uh, things on earth or not is irrelevant. The Lord promises that he'll reward you no matter whether an earthly authority rewards you or not. The Lord pays back even if human authorities don't. So, our aim, even when we're serving harsh and difficult bosses, isn't for a paycheck. It isn't for a pat on the back or a promotion or any other earthly reward. If that comes, great. But we're looking for eternal crowns greater than anything the world can offer. Think about that when you're at work tomorrow. <clears throat> Finally, masters, or like I said, literally, lords according to the flesh in verse 9. And I don't think we really get how truly radical it is what he says to them. He commands masters, do the same to them. Do the same to your slaves. What's he mean by that? I mean, it would have been unthinkable for a master to think that he was obligated under the Lord, even under the Lordship of Christ, to treat a slave as anything more than property. I think what he means here is slaves are to serve, just as their slaves were to serve them as as they would the Lord, so the masters ought to treat the slaves with the kindness and grace that the Lord treats them. So again, like the call to husbands and fathers previously, those in authority over others are to use their authority for the benefit of, and blessing and flourishing of those under them. That's what the Lord does for us. And he then cautions these masters to cease using threats. That's not the way the Lord is a master of us. Because both slaves and masters will stand before the same master one day. We have an ultimate master. No matter what your position in this society, No matter whether you're the president of the United States or just toiling away at some little job somewhere, we will all stand before the same master. And his judgment will be impartial. God shows no favoritism to those who have power. The amount of power you have is irrelevant to God. Okay. Now let's kind of put this all together. I want to emphasize again... The main point Paul is trying to drive home to us here is that one of the outworkings of the lordship of Christ in every area of our lives is that it impacts how we live out these relationships of authority and submission. Being free in Christ does not mean that we can do whatever we want. In fact, it means that we should now see human authority as something that God has ordained to be over us. Each of these human authority and submission relationships is, a reflect, is reflected in our relationship to God. So there is application here for all of us, even if you're not kids anymore, even if you're not a father, and even if you're not a slave or a master. What do I mean by that? I want you to think about this. So we've already seen Paul draw a correlation in in last week's message between human marriage and the church's relationship to Christ. And that has application to all of us, whether we're married or not, right? And so it is here. Are we not all children of God if we're born again? Is God not your heavenly father? Just as a child is commanded to obey their earthly parents, so we all ought to obey our heavenly father. And suppose you're not a father. What if you're a, a single guy or a woman, single or married, you're not a father. But wait, aren't all of us commanded to go and make disciples of all the nations? Isn't there someone behind us on the path to maturity unless you got saved yesterday someone behind you is there anyone you can pour your life into we don't just disciple our own children and isn't there a sense in which we're all slaves of christ no matter who we are what position we hold in our families or our work lives or our communities we're all slaves in one sense or another Many times scripture uses the slave metaphor to describe our relationship to God. Now, it's not the only imagery of our relationship to God. Don't hear me say that. There are many metaphors in scripture that describe that relationship. We looked at one last week in marriage. There's the vine and the branches. Jesus used that imagery. He called us friends. There's the brother-sister we're called living stones, a temple being built, all of these images that the Bible uses for our relationship to God. But this is one we don't use much because thankfully, slavery is not a big thing in our culture today, thankfully. It's illegal. So maybe our tragic history makes us hesitant to focus on this particular imagery but the Bible is unhindered by our modern sensibilities. And one concern I have is that if we lose that imagery, we can lose any real understanding of what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. So a lot of times when we say Lord Jesus Christ, we think of the title, the, the term Lord as simply a title of respect. Or maybe you think of it in theological terms that it's a reference to his deity. And it is both of those, but it actually means the one who's in charge. He's the one in charge. He's your boss, the ultimate boss. And he intends to invade every area of your life and conform it to his holiness. So the call to obey him is not a suggestion. In fact, Christian hedonist here so I want to say that the call to obey him is an invitation to joy it's an invitation to your greatest joy he rightfully owns us he owns us because he created us and he owns us because he bought us with the blood of his own son so we're doubly owned first Corinthians 6 19 to 20 says this or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Bodily autonomy doesn't exist in God's universe. And think of all the times that Paul referred to himself as a servant of Christ. You know, don't you, that he used the word doulos there, slave. He's, so when you the introductions to his letters, when he says Paul, a bond servant of Christ, he's saying a slave of Christ. Do you see yourself as that? Yes. All the things we've talked about our identity in Christ. Yes, you are a child of God, you're an heir of Christ, you're a new creature in Christ, you're part of the of the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for God's own possession. Oh, wait a minute, there's that word, possession. He possesses us. So even in all that wonderful imagery, I want you to know that God owns you. If if you are his child, if you're born again in the spirit. So yes, we are also slaves of Christ happily, willingly, joyfully enlisted in his service, yielding every area of our lives to his holy will. I know we're not perfect in that. None of us is perfect. But I hope we're striving toward that goal. And this is true, whether in the earthly realm you're one who's under authority, like children, or an employee, or one who is in authority, like a manager, or a father. So there's a sense in which each one of these applies to all of us. In fact, it's probably true that at various times in our lives, we've been in both of these positions, sometimes at the same time, right? So maybe you work under a boss at work, but when you come home, you're a parent. So there, you're in the position of authority. At work, you're under the authority. So no matter what the case, let me leave you with this thought. Whether you're the one under authority or the one with authority, you are always to be living in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Obeying authority, earthly authority, as you would obey Christ, or if you're the one who has that authority, using it for the blessing, benefit, and flourishing of others. Let me pray. Thank you for the price you paid for us, Father. We didn't deserve that. We're we're sinners apart from your grace and all we deserve is eternal hell. Your wrath poured out on us and yet you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins, to absorb the wrath that you justly have towards sinners so that we could be saved thank you and we no longer if if we know you that way we no longer serve the things of the world you've called us to serve you to be your servants to be slaves of righteousness Paul says so I know that none of us in this room is perfect in living that out but we need you we need you to help, help us keep growing and advancing along that sanctifying path. So keep molding us, keep shaping us. Whatever struggles with sin are going on in this room here right now, pray for you to reach into those places and be Lord, Jesus, and root out this, the depths of sin in our heart and give us that hunger for holiness, that desire to walk in your ways and help us lose the desire for sin. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go toward the table here, I want to just remind you folks um, three groups of people I'm going to talk to. Uh, First... If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not trusting him as your Lord and Savior, or maybe you're wondering, what's all this stuff about the Lordship of Christ? I don't don't understand what's going on. Well, this table is for believers who trust in him. So we'd just ask you to not partake, but we'd love to talk to you. If you're curious about that, come talk to me after the service, talk to anyone around you. We love to talk about Jesus. A second group of people I would have in mind is if you're a believer and you're struggling with sin that you're not repenting of and you know it, known sin that you're not repenting of, I just ask that you deal with that first before you come to this table. Get that taken care of. It's a call to repent. And then if you're a A believer, but you're in conflict with another believer, especially somebody in this body. This is a table of unity. It's meant to show our unity. So if there's a brokenness in relationship between you and someone in this body, I just want to ask you to go make that right before you come to the table. So go make it right this week so you can come next week. So as we approach the table... I just want to remind you, these elements represent the body and blood of Jesus, right? So just, just like I prayed, the, blood, the body and blood of Jesus was broken and poured out for us, the penalty paid for our sins on that cross. So we look backwards to the cross when we partake of this, but we look forward too, don't we? I try, to, I try to mention this almost every time I'm doing the communion thing here. We look backward. When we come to this table, we're looking backward with sober seriousness at the cross and what Jesus accomplished there. And we're looking forward with joy to the wedding supper of the Lamb when we're gonna once again gather at the table with Jesus. So as you come forward, I want you to think in both those directions. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. Can't do this without glasses anymore. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So do you hear the look back, remember, and the look forward until he comes. So take a few minutes and seek the Lord. And when you're ready, you can come forward.